Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing extraordinary people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer, and before that, as a small-town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to talented people from the worlds of documentaries, reality TV, game shows, true crime, sports, business, and much more. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Please follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is Kim A. Snyder. She is a fantastic, award-winning documentary filmmaker whose work includes the Peabody-winning documentary Newtown about the 2012 Newtown mass shooting, as well as the documentary I Remember Me, a biographical film chronicling her struggles with chronic fatigue syndrome. Her latest documentary film that is available on demand and in select theaters right now is Us Kids, which was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. Us Kids is an insightful, powerful, coming-of-age story of a generation of youthful leaders determined to fight for justice following the horrific mass shooting that took 17 lives at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018. Sparked by the plague of gun violence ravaging their schools, Us Kids chronicles the March for Our Lives movement over the course of several years following its co-founders, survivors of the shooting, and a group of teenage activists as they pull off the largest youth protest in American history and set out across the country and globally to build an inclusive and unprecedented youth movement that addresses racial justice, a growing public health crisis, and shocking a political system into change. Please welcome Kim A. Snyder. Kim, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I watched Us Kids last night. It is incredible. It is one of those films that is emotional. Like I literally was moved to tears at at parts. It was inspiring. It was sad. It was was a range of emotions. Tell me a little bit about why you chose to do this film. Well, as you you mentioned, I had done a film in 2016 that had taken three years to make about that tragic shooting that we all sadly remember in Newtown, Connecticut, where elementary school children were, were killed in their classroom. 20 of them and six of their teachers. And I think that was a moment in America that a lot of people remember, like where they were that day. It was just a shocking, horrible thing. I spent three years ingratiating myself in that community and really honestly thought I was done. I mean, with that, I I never went into that thinking, uh, gee, I want to make a film about gun violence per se. I didn't really know more than the next person. I wasn't an activist. But I, some happenstance landed me there, and it was really the terrain of collective trauma and how a town would sort of collectively deal with this, you know, uh, almost as a family, the entire town and the ripple effect. And the one thing I came out of that film thinking I wasn't really done or it was gnawing at me was the fact that I had come to know some of the families of Um, a number of children who had escaped when the shooter's gun jammed. Those kids, you know, we didn't, we we, uh, maintained their privacy for a number of reasons and they were first graders. And I always, I was always plagued with the idea that, uh, that I knew the trajectory uh, for years after I kept in touch with some of those folks and how hard their path was. They were lucky to have survived and felt a lot of survivor's guilt, but, Um, they just had a really hard road. And I thought about them multiplied by hundreds and thousands of kids across America who who are privy to gun violence, witness it, lose siblings, lose parents, and the trauma in inner cities and in all kinds of places, not just towns like Newtown. And that, that really made me think about numbers. You know, is society really looking at the cost? of a nation of increasingly traumatized youth. So anyway, as fate would have it, I was working on something else in Florida on the day that 
you know, because other mass shootings had happened since Newtown, obviously many, yeah, uh, including big ones like Pulse and Vegas. And then Parkland happened, and I was there on the steps of the Florida State Capitol with my crew uh, following something else when these busloads of traumatized and angry kids showed up from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas wow. High School, where, wow. where their classmates had been killed, and they were demanding change. And I just... I can. I felt that this was a very different moment, and that I needed to do this, and that it would be a very different kind of film than Newtown had been. That really explored more youth and rage, and transforming that into hope. Um, I think it's uh, as sad as you said it is. It's 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 a, a very different tone than Newtown. It's almost like you were meant to tell this story. You jumped into the middle of the story. How did that affect the way you filmed? How did that affect the way you told the story? The fact that it was ongoing. It's not like you were looking back on the on the story. You were literally in the midst of it. It's true. That, I mean, it was like jumping like onto the back of a train and holding on for dear life. Yeah. I mean, you know, we we ran, we went down to Parkland. We started to build some trust uh, with a variety of people. And, and both Newtown and the Parkland, uh, the, the us kids had this similarity that it was like peeling an onion. You know, you start to get to know people who lead you to other people when you're when you're getting into a community. You know, the first sort of big moment was that we understood they were planning for this. The walkouts were happening. There was they were getting tons of media. We uh, because of, of of having done the Newtown film and a certain credibility, we were able to get access and sort of be chosen to to have a special access to the March for Our Lives event, which we had three uh, cameras at, which was really extraordinary in D.C. And I'll never forget that. And then shortly thereafter, we learned that they would allow us to trail them for what became two months across the country as they set out on something called Road to Change um, to not only take this to people's backyards and and have town halls across the country around the issue of gun violence, but what was happening there was a sort of an inclusive movement was being built, and they were being joined by you know kids kids of color from Chicago and Milwaukee, and where you know I think you see in the film where in the beginning there had been this elephant in the room of why did these shootings get all the attention right when kids are dying every day in in black and brown communities that don't get that media attention. And they understood that right away and, and didn't think it was fair. And so they they wanted to make this much bigger than this just can't be the same narrative of another another shooting in another town and there's going to be thoughts and prayers and nothing will get done. Right. So it was really, then it became following a movement. And then I got even more involved emotionally with the characters of the kids and started to get more of their emotional life and what and and the the objective there was to really tell a, a coming of age story represented by a handful of kids that is emblematic i think of a gen z that is just uh, you know coming of age in, a, in, a, in an incredibly stressful and um perilous time you know, I've seen Cameron Caskey and I've seen Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg now recently, and they look so different. You know, your film, you're literally interviewing them back when they were in high school. And obviously they're now in college and, you know, they grew up really in the spotlight and they, ne- you know, they never really intended that. Tell me a little bit about what that was like. You were able to, you know, put the cameras on them at this incredibly sensitive, intimate moment when they were trying to trying to make a statement, trying to start a movement. Yes, and I think that part of the story, if people see the film, is that the media itself, although you know often well-meaning, that in and of itself was a bit of a trauma. To be like a regular high school kid, you know, Sam, the other character, says in the beginning, you know, we were just normal ass kids, and to go from that to the complicated emo- to, to the genuine desire to want to change the world and in a way avenge the deaths of friends through action was was 
very sincere, you know, there was a lot of authenticity in that. And, you know, of course, the, the they got an enormous media attention, but they, they never set out to be famous. I think part of what the film's able to do is really look at the toll that all of this took on them, the sacrifice, and that at any age it would be it would be hard. But there's there's something about becoming famous yeah. because of the most horrible thing that ever happened in your life. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the word survivor's guilt, and the you know the fact that some of them were getting death threats is is literally insane. They survived this horrific event, they lose friends, and then because they're speaking out and trying to cause some positive change, you have people who are threatening their lives. Like, that's why I say when I watched it, it did make me sad. Like, you could literally, part of the reason I love the way you filmed it is you could see the pain on their faces when they're being confronted by, you know, active, I guess, activists on the other side with literally holding you know, an AR-15, which was the same weapon that was used to kill their friends. Tell me about that kind of sensitivity that you had to use because you're literally then going and interviewing them after they've been through such a horrific, traumatic experience. Well, one of the things, you know, David and I have done some press together recently, and he will say that, um, has said that my crew and myself, you know, I was very strict about observing boundaries. Yeah. I knew they were exhausted on the road. And so I really didn't interview them. It was more verite um, of just being a fly on the wall. And by virtue of, you know, just months of filming every day with two different cameras and just enormous amounts of footage, we were able to capture a lot of, you know, these moments that you're talking about. It wasn't until after that they the trust kind of, you know, got one level deeper where I could sit down and it, it wasn't just that they trusted me. It was partly that at that point that it was sort of a collaborative effort to do something that was beyond the, the three, the three minute news, um, you know, hit, but it was also that they were, they, they hadn't been able to take a breath. They couldn't process it on the road because they were, they were like, it was like following a rock band, you know, yeah. very much like that, like a con- a concert tour. They'd be in a, you know, we'd be in a different place almost every night. And it was exhausting and you get up and they had the bus and they had security and they would roll into town and they'd do a town hall. And so we just tagged along and then come fall, that was the summer. In the fall, we, you know, I started to, to get to this deeper level of looking back, you know, it, 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 and, and starting to just begin to process the prior uh, nine months or whatever it was. That's fascinating that you had to film, 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 really let them, really let the story itself unfold and then go back and do a lot of those interviews. You really couldn't tell. It really felt very much like you were in the moment interviewing them. Tell me a little bit, how long did you film and kind of a little bit more about the the process of putting the the film together? Well, I think we started filming um, in Parkland. I mean, the the footage that I'm talking about with the busloads of kids was three days after the shooting in February of 2018. And then we filmed over the course of that entire spring when there were the walkouts, in, of course, March 24th, which was the March for Lives through the, that summer, which was their Road to Change uh, tour into that fall of 2018 and then 2019 we continued to get interviews and film you know really all through that year intermittently and 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 the backbone of the film for me is Sam Fuentes who was shot with an AR-15 in her class and she you know her voice I think is the 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 voice of of the trauma you know of of having been shot seeing her good friend murdered next to her and such a strong young woman who starts to find her own voice as an activist. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time with her and the family of the Dwarits who lost their son, Nick, who, who was her friend. And that continued through all of 2019. So it really was two years um, in the, in, and 
now it's three because we've been in each other's lives a lot um, since the film premiered at Sundance. Sam is really a resilient, impressive young lady, and she showed such vulnerability, and you you did such a a fantastic job in terms of capturing that. But like when she's speaking, and you know, the world saw her throw up, and then but it was her speech actually that she was giving in a much more private setting, where you literally saw her the 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 raw passion, the emotion, and just the toll that this was taking on her. Tell me a little bit about her what your impressions of her are, how you feel about just how strong she's been, but yet how she's coping with what she's been through. Well, Sam and I have gotten quite close as friends <laughs> since this. And, you know, I was particularly careful with her that the, the process of the filmmaking would not in any way jeopardize her own healing. And so it was very collaborative uh, in terms of, I mean, that was true when I made Newtown. It's like, just making sure that this did not, uh, this was better rather than worse for her own healing. But she felt that she was able to reclaim and tell the story on her own terms in working together and developing that trust. So it ended up being an incredibly um, positive relationship. We're doing a lot of things with the film now to further awareness about gun violence and, you know, uh, speak to kids with trauma. We're, actually going together to Boulder, Colorado, which sadly had their own shooting not long ago, yeah. where they're, the mayor is hosting something. And, you know, Sam is a hero to me. She's just remarkably resilient in the face of everything she's been through. You know, as she says in the film, I wouldn't feel whole if I wasn't doing something about the fact that my friend was murdered in front of me. So it's, obviously changed her life you know a lot of it ptsd is is a, is a serious thing that doesn't just go away she'll be dealing with it forever you know it's forever changed her but um she's she's in college here in new york city she's leading a productive life and we you know continue to talk about these things a lot she's just and and the maturity i think all of them uh you know these kinds of hardships for better or worse mature us in a certain way and you um you know if you believe in the Nietzsche idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger Sam is certainly a reflection of that how did shooting this film how did making this film affect you as a storyteller because I mean this is all emotion and and it is as personal of a story as you can get in terms of these are young people whose lives have been torn apart these are families whose lives have been torn apart. And it is as controversial of an issue as this country has. How did making this movie affect you? Well, walking into it, I already, I would already say that I had become an activist, you know, storyteller first, but I was just becoming close to friends in, in Newtown, some of whom I'll have dinner with tomorrow night. I mean, these are relationships that were very meaningful. And to actually know these people as friends and understand what they went through, what what any victims of gun violence go through. It, it profoundly changes you and makes you just angry and want to want to change things if there's if there's a way to prevent any of these things from happening. So it certainly made me into a gun violence prevention activist. It secondly, you know, I was a rebellious teenager in some ways, and it really put me back in touch as and you know, certainly a couple generations older than them in touch with my, my teenage self. And that was a good thing. It was like, I really had all kinds of memories flooding back and a lot of comparisons of like, well, what was I doing yes. that year? Yes. You know, and it certainly wasn't what they were doing. And so I had a lot of admiration and I learned a lot about Gen Z. It's not to say that they represent all of Gen Z, sure. but there is a, there's a portion of that generation that I really do have enormous hope. It gives me hope about the future of this country because they've, they're stepping up and sacrificing in ways young people have done, you know, throughout history when the times call on them to do so. So there's a lot of uh, I don't know. There's a lot of myths about Gen Z that kind of got dispelled 
things that I didn't expect or things that I thought, oh, it's, it's actually different than I thought. Um, trauma looks different at that age than it does in adult trauma. And as a storyteller, I think I definitely learned that I like working with that age and would like, you know, I've been thinking about some narrative work. Um, you know, really, there's just a, a, you know, and remember it in my own self, there's a, your, your barometer of, for BS <laughs> is really, it's, it's, it's really keen. Yeah. You know what doesn't, which, what reads false, and that's what they're calling on in terms of the, the political world that we're looking at a lot. So I think that um, I really appreciate that earnestness and that, um, that genuineness, even though sometimes for some people it comes along with thinking you know it all. Uh, so I learned that I really, I really love being around that age and, and working with that age. And, and it's all about, I think, respect. I think I learned that there's a lot of condescension toward young people. There's a lot of ageism that goes both ways. And when we talk about diversity now, which we need to do with, with all, in all respects, racially and economically, I think we think about it less in terms of age, but I think like our relationships proved that that's another form of pushing ourselves to be open-minded, you know, that you can learn a lot from people younger than you. And then when they feel that you're not being condescending and there's a genuine respect, there's, there's a, a lovely reciprocity that happens. So those are, those are just a few of the things that changed me. I had the exact same reaction in terms of reflecting on myself at age 17 and 18. I was at the LA version of the March for Our Lives. And I remember seeing them, you know, up on the big screen and watching and just reflecting on the idea that, you know, I was stressed about getting into college. You know, the last thing that would have ever been on my mind was speaking in front of millions of people, of going in front of, you know, uh, my senators and fighting for something as big as gun reform. And so I, I look at them. Yes. And I, the, the, the utmost, it's not just even respect, it's admiration and something. Right. That, yeah, it really was. It was admiration. And, you know, it takes a lot now to, to be moved and to, to, to act, you know, I mean, we all have so much going on in our lives, but you know, yeah, like it got me out there and it made me, you know, it made me want to do something. And in a similar, you know, I'll take that to this past summer with the Black Lives Matter. Those were young people out there leading these, you know, these marches. And and I jumped right in, you know, as a Gen Xer, there I was following them again. And so I, I, I agree with you in that there's something for us all to kind of learn if we if we just get that energy. A lot of it was just energy. I really respected that that generation that was like, hey, you know, we can actually do this. I think, you know, people who come from my age, we all kind of just were like, hey, okay, this is, this is the way it is. And it was, it's great to see that, that, that these kids that, that, you know, that you followed didn't, didn't accept that. Yeah. They're, they're, they're piping mad about complacency. Yes. Of the older generations. Yes. One of the things that occurred to me as I was watching, you know, specifically coming, cause you did Newtown and now this was you know, your, your second doc about gun violence, was it tough for you? Did you have to remind yourself as a storyteller that there's a huge topic, like there's the big topic of mass shootings and gun violence, but you also had to tell that personal story. You also had these personal stories to tell. How did you balance telling those very personal, intimate stories with also trying to remind the audience that there's a much bigger problem here? it's not coming at it like I have an issue. I don't love survey films, you know, where yeah. you take an issue and then it's like, I'll find, you know, the starting point is sort of the issue. And then, you know, I, I just like the flip where it's character first and who are these people that lead us into the story, which is why Sam, I made the choice to have Sam, you know, be a key storyteller there of, you know, this is what happened to me. And I'm sort of an average high school kid. So that was, you know, in terms of just storytelling, 
uh, Sam was my my way in. And then in terms of that, you know, that bigger backdrop, it was hard because traveling across the country, there's just so much footage we couldn't use right. that is historic and emblematic of uh, a time in America that I think history will prove is just as uh, dynamic and historic, you know, as the 60s. Yeah. You know, it was it was trying to pull out the lens during you know, when we, we intercut back and forth between the kids on the road in the summer, you get a sense of what's happening in the country and also using archival material to um, to remind us of that. There was so much momentum building with the work of Sam and, and Cameron and Emma and David and all of them, really. You know, like it, there was 800 odd events throughout the world as part of March for Our Lives. And even today, like it's still going. Yet there hasn't been federal legislation to reform guns since 1994. I mean, they've done everything that you can humanly possibly do. What's missing? What What is that kind of missing link? Or is there really, like, are we hopeless? Well, I think the bigger, and they know this, the bigger issue is beyond guns. It's like every single issue that has a bipartisan flavor to it is at an impasse. And I think if you talk to a lot of them, a lot of young people, they're just, they're demoralized, not only the situation with guns that threatened them, they're demoralized with the two party system. I mean, they're just sick of the, 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 the red and blue uh, tribal fight. You know, I always liken it to like, they're, they're kids that are growing up like in a household with like, just war of the roses, you know, like parents that are just, that are going through a horrible divorce and the kids suffer. And, you know, it it wasn't always like that. And so I think the bigger picture is because of that, they understand that, that something is broken. They understand they, they, they will talk about the filibuster. I mean, they really understand these bigger things that need to be fixed in or, and they also understand that you can't talk about gun violence without a myriad of other talking about racial inequity, right. that it, that it all, it all, you know, goes together with black lives matter and with, uh, for reframing the gun issue as a public health crisis, which it is. I mean, there was a time when, you know, smoking had a strong, obviously the tobacco lobby was strong and, there, there was a way that we moved the needle forward on yeah. understanding that secondhand smoke was a problem, drunk driving. I mean, all kinds of things that threaten the lives of kids. We, we had a way to address it. And with this, it's just been like, you know, just it's, there's no regulations, period. Like, right. nothing, you know. Yeah. And so I think the hope is that they do understand while, while they continue to push um, you know, under the Biden administration for Congress to act in some way on this, because because we all know that the vast the vast majority of um, Americans, even who own guns and who are Republicans, believe that we should do something to keep guns out of the wrong hands, because we just can't maintain this amount of daily carnage. Um, I mean, I think most Americans. I know it. I know, you know, the stats, right. like 90% of Americans believe in background checks. So I think they would say and do say that we also have to look hyper local. So that's why yeah. they're such, they, they were so wonderful. You see in the film that they were instrumental in turning out one of the highest youth voter turnouts in midterms in history. Right. Because they're advocating for kids to vote down ballot, get intelligent, you know, about who you're, your state and local lawmakers are see where they put, you know, make, make the issues a priority, not the tribal red and blue and um, see, you know, a lot of people overlook since Newtown and since Parkland, a lot of state um, gun uh, reform laws got passed and the data shows that they can make a difference. You know, the myth that, well, it's not going to make any difference if you do X, Y. It's not true. There, there's stats that, like drunk driving, it's not going. The airbags didn't save every life in an, in a car accident, 
but they save some. And so they understand that, that the, the local emphasis on activism matters. That gives me hope. Uh, and, they, and like I said, they, they are really looking at root causes. Um, you can't just take the mental health piece out. It all has to go together. Um, two-thirds of gun deaths are suicide. Right. So, you know, we have to look at uh, we're, we're in a, a really horrible time in terms of guns. You've got the gun sales soaring. You've got people depressed. They're coming out of the isolation of the pandemic. Uh, teen suicide was on the rise. Domestic violence was on the rise. All of these things you know, um, involve guns many times. So that's what I see. And, and the other thing I see that really changed after Newtown, I have to say, is that people say, well, nothing changed because federal laws didn't. But I think there's another way of looking at it, which is, there were new messengers, new voices, and those voices, and I, I see it now in PSAs, those voices are doctors and cops and teachers and priests and rabbis. These are people that 20 years ago were sort of, well, that's out of my, you know, I'm not going to talk about guns. There's a lot of people that, you know, small towns across America look at these uh, contingents of society as, as people that we're supposed to listen to. Yeah. And they, a lot of them are really starting to say, I can't be quiet. Doctors, we showed our new trauma doctors who say, I would have lost my job for talking about guns, but I've just seen too many kids with uh, AR-15 wounds that, you know, there's, we, we don't even have a shot of saving them. And we've got to speak out. So that is hopeful to me that you've got, especially law enforcement, there's so many more police, sheriffs and police officers across the country that I've met who really understand that we need to have, because they don't want to show up at a house with uh, an unhinged person that stockpiled a ton of AR-15s that outarm them. They don't want that. Right. The local aspect is a great point. There have been many local laws that have been passed. And so that, that is a, a, a great move in the right direction. And people should know that in the first four months of this year, there have been over 160 mass shootings. So as you said, this is a, a really tough time, especially coming out of the pandemic. But I, I, but I think a lot too now about cultural, you know, how, how especially with people abroad who just, you know, every other country that's had something like this the minute it happens they changed their laws or they did something yeah, yeah. and yeah. they just scratch their heads they really are in disbelief uh of why we don't do anything to address this really in their in in their eyes and so uh, it's hard to explain to someone outside this country like what is what what culturally is beneath that that we kind of revere you know what is it about either the, the um, cultural violence or guns that must be a deeper thing. And, you know, you, as a film person, I, I, it's funny, during the pandemic, I was re-watching so many classics and watching a lot of movies like a lot of people, but through different eyes of all kinds. And one of them was through the eyes of, you know, how does violence and guns read into a lot of these things? Of course, there's the old John Wayne movies, but it is interesting to sort of contemplate what the the kind of reverence and um, as one uh, reverend I met in Newtown would say, the idolatry of the gun. You know, what is that about? A hundred percent. I mean, I, I am a child of the 80s where, you know, I grew up watching Schwarzenegger and Stallone. I uh, literally just gunned down people. And it was like that was the summer. Those were the summer movies. Right. It was just that's right. You know, right. I mean, the they would literally write articles about the with the body count. Those were considered ac just action movies and it would just just be them gunning down people with AK-47s. Now that you've done you've done two of these um, great docs on uh, the gun violence situation. Do you ha do you want to keep going down this path and really exploring this? Do you have are, are you looking? Hey, I really have a lot of other interests that I want to explore. What are you looking at in terms of your filmmaking career in terms of next? 
It's a great question because it is a definitely a crossroads. I would say I am eclectic and I like, I, I like trying, having new challenges. So I, I'm, I'm passionate about music. I would love to make a music doc in the near future. Um, I love science. I mean, there's lots of things in the nonfiction arena, um, but I also feel very strong pull right now toward narrative work. And when I think about that, I think a lot of what informed these two movies, as I said, was not the gun violence issue as much as the terrain of trauma. I'm not sure what that is that I understand and work well with, but, uh, you know, the kind of movies I grew up loving, a lot of them were, what I would say, sophisticated horror, you know, like, yeah. um, And, and so those are, you know, I guess, you go down to like, what are the emotions, you know, fear and, um, it's personal, you know, those per it's the personal side of what you're talking about in terms of how they're dealing with this, these horrific events and the trauma that comes with it. Yeah. So, you know, when I was making Newtown, I was attracted to older films like ordinary people Oof, and, um, yeah. narrative films and, and the film, um, the sweet hereafter, um, you know, these were films about, people going through tremendous loss and then processing it. Um, so I can imagine in, in segueing to narrative work, that is interesting to me. You know, I, I know a lot about PTSD. I'm not a trained psychologist, but I know a lot about how towns react and, and people uh, around these kinds of things that were unthinkable. Um, so I could see, translating that and part of me wants to explore you know i'm not sure if it's a a one-off or a series but sort of gen z and getting inside of that idea of and you know how much anxiety there is for a lot of you know in in us kids in us kids one of the cam caskey says you know i wish i didn't care as much. And he says, what are you going to do? You're going to be, you either have to be uh, nihilistically optimistic or blissfully ignorant. Yeah. And I always love that line because I think this generation just, there's so many things to stress out Well, for all of us. But if you're, you know, building a future and bringing children into the world and you're looking at climate change and, you know, uh, you know, gun deaths being the number one killer of kids, and you're looking at, you know, democracy that's being challenged. These are really, like, very stressful things that that threaten your survival. So, so I'm 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 interested in how young people kind of. I mean, that's the other thing. Us kids that hopefully we did well was really hit home that these are just kids. They're not just media, uh, you know, kids that show up on CNN. These are these are kids that did the same, yearn for and do the same. They go to prom, you know, they the same things that we all did at 17 and 18, and they want to be silly and have fun. And how do you sort of navigate, how do you compartmentalize and navigate through these kinds of times? So I'm interested in translating that into fiction, more and more and more so many of my documentary colleagues are making that leap or trying it or going back and forth or doing things that are more hybrid. I think in terms of storytelling, it's an exciting time where it's not so, you know, you got to do, you know, you got to do this or you got to do that. And there's so many different kinds of documentaries. You know, you could have gone with a much glossier look for the interviews, bigger room, much, you know, lighting that was glossier, was that a, a very distinct choice to do them in kind of a, in a bedroom setting or in a kitchen setting? Mm-hmm. Was that, can you talk a little bit about the interviews? Yeah, it, it definitely was. It was both aesthetic that I didn't want people to be, Oh, there's David Hogg again. I've seen, you know, that we're in, you know, when the cameras go away, kind of a feeling, but also it was because I wouldn't have gotten the same thing it it was like Pavlov's dogs. They had been through so many, so much media that 
the minute you, if you went in an hour before and were going to set up a whole lot of lights, I think there was an immediate guardedness of like, okay, this is that, this is that media thing. And they may exploit me and, you know, they, they would immediately have more of a guard. So a lot of it was, I had a second, a wonderful uh, young guy who was my second camera guy, not as experienced, but he was closer to their age. So there were things that I used in the film that may not have been quite as polished as my other DP, our lead DP, but they, you know, because they, you know, he could just hang out a lot with them, like off camera, uh, you know, we got stuff that we wouldn't have gotten in that other kind of, okay, you know, let's press go. And here's the interview. It was sort of the camera was rolling and, um, you know, and then there was a lot of process where some of those things were cut. Like what you don't see is that it might be a moment where I would show David uh, something we'd shot on the road and say, remember this, or isn't this, and he, you know, and he would react to that. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was like what we're doing right now. It's, it's not scripted. It's not conversational. I mean, it's conversational and you're just, responding to you know it's with spontaneity rather than i'm in interview mode yeah that that comes off for sure after people see us kids what do you want them to take away from this film hope a remembrance if they're older a remembrance of their 17 year old self with a better understanding of you know we we very purposefully left the film with primarily just the voices of kids. There really are few adult yeah. voices in the movie. You know, I want, I want people to see it as a coming of age story and really have a lens into this generation. I want people to feel like if they could do this, so can I. So I do want it to inspire social action. Um, and the, the best thing for a filmmaker to hear is how you started out this conversation, which is you want to make people laugh and cry. Yeah. You, know, you want, people to feel a range of issues and to, uh, you know, if it's a, if it's a dirge of, um, just constant crying, <laughs> uh, that's tough. That's tough to ask people sure. to sort of come along. But I think this film has enough, uh, of, a, of feelings of hopefulness and, you know, giving these kids, I think the film hopefully gives these kids, the historic documentation that is appropriate and due. They did something remarkable. They, you know, just that alone, they, they set out to avenge the deaths of friends. And in 47 days after their friends were murdered, they pulled off the largest youth protest in American history since the Vietnam era. And they were high schoolers. That's a remarkable story. Indeed. What advice do you have for aspiring filmmakers you have to be tenacious and persevere and i say that because in telling two stories that were big news stories that you think ah you know i mean i didn't go in there with um big streamer money so it's like in both cases there were a lot of other lots of other people knocking on those doors. Yeah. So I would say, you know, surely also go after the lesser told stories. But if you do find yourself in, in a position where you, for a good reason, not just because it's a big story, don't let that deter you to think, ah, I'll never get that story. Or because if, if people feel that they're in the same, you're on the same page and that you have a particular vision that they share and you can build that trust. They'll go, if it's important to them, they'll go, they'll go in the direction of, you know, who they think isn't going to exploit them. I think that's a, that's a real lesson is that um, we pulled that off twice. You can't cheat with long form verite documentary filmmaking to get that kind of emotion and something that's rare. You have to put in the time and build the trust. You know, if you don't have that, if that rapport isn't real, you're going to feel it. People will feel it on yeah. the screen. But if, as in the case of Sam, if it's a real relationship and you build it, 
you can get extraordinary things on emotion out of people. So you mentioned the big money of the streamers. How did you go about making us kids in terms of filming for so long, in terms of you know financing, in terms of getting it into theaters, going to Sundance, that sort of thing, in a day where pe- a lot of people, oh, well, what's on Netflix this weekend? What's on Hulu this weekend? What you know? Right. W- w- tell me a little bit about that process of going the festival route, going the theatrical route. Well, we were lucky in that we had the the um, Newtown got out there, won a Peabody. We had that credibility. It had been at Sundance. I became part of sort of Sundance community. Uh, I was at a lab. You know, then they, uh, you know, Sundance is a remarkable community that is just so the support for filmmakers that have they've nurtured is is profound and the talent that you're able to access for labs and advice is is significant as well. So we were lucky in that we had some of that with us kids went to, to one of their programs called catalyst. We were invited where, you know, there are creative investors who are looking for extraordinary stories. So we were able to do that. You know, we're fortunate enough to get into the Sundance competition with this film. And we were also lucky enough to go and premiere it with all the kids in tow. We were all, it was an extraordinary trip together. And it was just as COVID descended. You know, we were slated to go on to South by and, oh my goodness, New New Zealand and, you know, all these places. And, you know, and then that all became virtual. We were working out of, uh, as everybody was out of Zoom and, we went and we, we won five awards virtually in on the festival run. And, you know, I won't lie, there was a lot of sadness for me in and all of my filmmaker friends for this class of 2020. It just wasn't anything like a normal year. I mean, part of what I thrive on with films, particularly films like this, is the feedback along the way. It was, you know, the countless screenings with Newtown with teachers who would come up crying and saying, you know, you've given a voice to this or that. And with us kids, it was sort of in a vacuum. And we got the feedback that it was all like the, like all of us experiencing isolation. It was just sitting in your place for a year. And, but we didn't give up and we actually did a lot of pivoting and out of the box things that traditionally people say, you can't, you know, you can't go out and release your film. We did a series of drive-in screenings um, where Sam went on the road to a few of them last summer. Um, You know, we did a few things that were outdoors in the summer. And then when the election was coming up, I felt it was essential that the film be available to young people because we wanted to stand in solidarity in terms of turning out the youth vote. And so uh, to that end, we made it available on YouTube for free for like 24 hours, which people never do. And it was like we had 30,000 viewers in like a minute. We had enormous support from youth. Uh, that's, I didn't mention that. I mean, uh, from influencers, uh, youth influencers. Like Sean Mendes, the singer, saw the movie and loved it. And he tweeted. And that was like, a remarkable understanding for an older person. I was like, wow, one tweet, you know, he'd say something like, see this film and then vote. And you'd have like within minutes kids saying I'm watching because they could access it for free. You know, I'm crying, I'm watching, I'm going to vote tomorrow. So we felt really great about that. Then Cher, the illustrious Cher (laughs) saw our film and loved it. She joined on as an executive producer. So we got, a lot of people who were recognizing that this film also was giving this group of activist kids a voice. I mean, a, a large swath. And we got to just, you know, it took a while. It was not an easy year with distribution, but theaters had closed down. But we got we got a distributor, Greenwich Entertainment. We're now in over 60 theaters. Theaters are you know, iffy and tricky right now for small movies, but we want people to, we, we think that the film is a call to action. So we want people to tell people to go see it. And now, you know, it's available on, on demand. So 
we pulled a rabbit out of the hat somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So why don't why don't you tell everybody? I watched it on Apple. So why don't you tell everybody where they can find the film? Sure. Any, it's it's video. You know, it's it's uh, iTunes and Amazon Prime and app. You know, it's on any of those video on demand platforms. It's in theaters. The main thing you could you could go to our website, which is uskidsfilm.com, and not only learn where to see it locally, but you know if you're so inclined to organize a screening, we're, we're getting requests from chapters of uh, all kinds of you know youth groups and things like that across the country you can do that and you can also follow ways to take action and get involved in the issue terrific awesome and everybody should definitely see us kids kim thank you so much for doing the show i really appreciate it thank you your questions were great (laughs) i do my best i do my best Yeah, it's been a great conversation. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. For everyone listening, please subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also email questions that you have to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for the studio. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.